This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on Africa News Tonight. I think his writings and otherwise indicate he was a man of great humility, of great patience, who listened very, very well, um, who, whose entire life was focused around bringing God to people and bringing people to God. That's Joseph Capizzi, a professor of theology at the Catholic University of America on the legacy of late Pope Benedict. Details coming up. Also, Egypt's economy is struggling. The U.S. House of Representatives is still trying to select a new leader. And there is optimism about peace in Tigray. All these and more on African News Tonight. First, our top story. Some of the more than 70,000 Ethiopians who fled to Sudan during the two-year war in the Tigray region are hoping to soon go home as a November peace deal between Ethiopia's federal forces and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, appears to be holding. But some Tigrayan refugees are skeptical the peace will last, as Michael Atit reports from Um Rakuba refugee camp in Sudan. 61-year-old Tigrayan Tisfai Gabriel Mariam fled Ethiopia's civil war to Sudan's Umrakuba refugee camp two years ago after his wife was killed in the fighting. He has since lived with his two grandchildren in a makeshift shelter. But the November peace deal between Ethiopia's federal government and Tigrayan authorities has raised hopes they may be able to soon return home. <laughs> Tesfai says if peace is implemented and there is a stability in Ethiopia, they will go back. But he says he understands people are still being targeted. If there is a total peace, says Tesfai, they are ready to go home. But they say peace has come, he says, and then they come and kill our people again. Tesfai says that is why we can't believe them. Rights Group says hundreds of thousands of Tigrayans were pushed out of their homes in what amounts to ethnic cleansing, a notion that Ethiopian authorities reject. Even if their safety was guaranteed, it is not clear what Tigrayan refugees like Tesfai would have left if they returned home. Tesfai worked as a grocer in Tigray's capital, Mekele, but says his shop was looted during the war. His story and fears are echoed by other Tigrayans living in Umrakuba. Mulugar Sihar, a 58-year-old mother of four, also arrived at the camp two years ago. She says life here has been difficult and they are ready to go home to Tigray if there is peace. She says peace is good, but we are not sure if the agreement is going to be implemented. Muluk says they are happy that they have agreed to stop fighting and accept to work for peace. She says we want to live with our children in our homeland. The peace deal is stated that foreign forces would withdraw from Ethiopia, the TPLF would disarm, and key services would be restored to Tigray. In December, Ethiopia restored some telecommunications power and flights to Tigray and allowed more humanitarian aid to enter the region. Witnesses in the Tigray region towns of Exum and Shire last week said Eritrean forces that fighting on the side of Ethiopia's federal forces withdrew, though it was not clear if Eritrean troops had left Tigray completely. 
But 61-year-old Tigrayan refugee Birhan Hero still fears the peace deal will not hold. She says services in Umbrakuba camp have worsened in recent months, but she still prefers staying in Sudan rather than going home and risk being killed. <laughs> Birhan says we will only go back home when Ethiopia has a new prime minister. For now, she says, I prefer staying here in the camp. We lost many of our relatives during this war, says Birhan, and that is why I'm not going back. The United Nations in October estimated half a million Ethiopians have died from conflict, hunger, disease and lack of medical care during the war. The UN's refugee agency in Sudan was not immediately available for comment on when it would be safe for Tigrayans to return to Ethiopia. The Sudanese Humanitarian Commission, which is responsible for the country's refugee issues, did not respond to requests for comment. Michael Atid for VOA News, Umrah Kube Refugee Camp, Sudan. In Rome today, crowds of mourners gathered at the St. Peter's Square for the funeral of Pope Emeritus Benedict, who died Saturday at the age of 95. More than 60,000 people attended the ceremony, among them official delegations from Italy and Benedict's native Germany. Other leaders, including the King and Queen of Belgium and about 13 heads of state or governments, attended in a private capacity. A choir sings as a Roman Catholic cardinal blesses the coffin of Benedict during the funeral service led by his successor, Pope Francis. In 2013, Benedict became the first pope to retire from the office in 600 years. Pope Francis prays, Gracious Father, we commend you to your mercy, Pope Emeritus Benedict, whom you made successor of Peter and shepherd of the church. Catholics and other Christians around the world have reflected on Benedict's legacy over the past several days. In Accra, Bilkisi Giwi speaks about his support for traditional Catholic doctrine. He just didn't want to bend. He was so traditional, conservative, and he wanted to keep the Holy See holy and didn't want to mar it with anything that was uncatholic. Also in Accra, Esther Agiapong says she admired his leadership. He was a great leader. He had his weaknesses. He had um, a few inconsistencies in his papacy. But I think he served well. He, d- he displayed integrity. As people pondered Benedict's legacy, some mourners called for him to be elevated to sainthood. Benedict's death on Saturday brought to an end a decade of the former and present Pope living side by side in the Vatican, and it was the first time in more than 200 years that a pontiff had led the service for his predecessor. Professor Joseph Capizzi is a professor of theology at the Catholic University of America. VOA's Douglas Mpuga reached him by phone in Washington and began by asking him his impression of the funeral. Um, I thought the funeral was elegant and beautiful uh, and to some extent really spoke to uh, the kind of man Pope Benedict was. Uh, There was a kind of, you know, focus on the gospel in Pope Francis's uh, comments, you know, in his homily that I thought was just representative of the way Pope Benedict 
focused his life, his teachings, his writings on the gospel himself. Talking of Pope Benedict the man and his life as a pope, uh, there are already calls for some people from some quarters for his uh, being made a saint. First of all, what's the likelihood, and if so, what would the process be like? Well, there's, there's been a trend, uh, as you probably know, to move popes, uh, recognize their sainthood relatively quickly. Uh, and, you know, of course, that happened most you know, conspicuously with Pope John Paul II. So I, I can see there's some momentum to do this. I, I can't, of course, speculate about whether it will happen, but, but Pope Benedict clearly lived a saintly life. Uh, you know, his, again, I think there's a misapprehension of him sometimes in the press that he was a rigorous, you know, difficult, unyielding man. And in fact, I think his writings and otherwise indicate he was a man of great humility, of great patience, who listened very, very well, um, who whose entire life was focused around bringing God to people and bringing people to God. So uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, it moves quickly again with uh, Pope Benedict. And unlike other popes before him, he seems to have had admir admirers from many faiths, not only the Catholic faith. That's correct. And I think that that speaks to the way he was animated by the love of God. And and also even the conviction that he applied to the pursuit of truth. Faithful people, people of very different faiths, recognize in other people of faith this burning commitment to pursue the truth. And sometimes this can lead to direct confrontation and questioning about different claims of faith, but it's but usually it's done with great respect among people like that. And I think that people of other faiths, Jews, Muslims, even atheists, right, who uh, Pope Benedict engaged many, many times, saw in him somebody who was committed to the truth uh, and committed to bringing an encounter, an encounter with God to people. Joseph Capizzi, professor of theology at the Catholic University of America, he spoke with Douglas Mpuga from Washington. Observers say 2023 will be a hectic year for South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. The independent think tank Afrasid notes that South Africa takes over the rotational presidency of the BRICS group of developing economies, which also includes Brazil, Russia, India and China. Ramaphosa will oversee several BRICS efforts, including the potential membership of countries such as Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Iran. He'll also help manage important projects like the development of the group's new development bank, which finances infrastructure projects and the BRICS contingent reserve arrangement, a mechanism that provides liquidity to member countries during the economic crisis. BRICS members are also working to expand trade and find an alternative to dollar-based business activities. For a third day, members of the U.S. House of Representatives today are trying to select a new Speaker of the House. The leader of the House Republican, Kevin McCarthy, faces stiff opposition from a small faction of his party. 
The Republicans hold a very small majority in the House, and McCarthy needs support from almost everyone in the party to take the Speaker's gavel. VOA's Capitol Hill correspondent, Catherine Gibson, joins us now to update us on what is happening. Welcome back to African News Tonight, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. So first, let's talk about what happened yesterday in the House. Right. So yesterday in the House, we saw an additional three rounds of voting for the next Speaker of the House. And Kevin McCarthy was once again thwarted in his bid to become the Speaker of the House by that small group of conservative Republicans who have consistently rejected to his bid to lead the House. They argue that he is not ideologically aligned with them and that, quite frankly, they don't trust him to institute some of their proposed changes to House rules, including changes about the debt ceiling and about the way that you can remove a Speaker of the House. They want each individual member to be able to lodge complaints which would really change the U.S. system and bring it more towards the parliamentary system where there could be a vote of no confidence at any one time. We ended the day pretty much where we started with about 20 people objecting to his candidacy and really no movement forward. So it seems like uh, the current strategy for uh, Kevin McCarthy appears to be to fight a war of attrition. Have any positions shifted? Could there be a compromise? I think we are seeing more of a movement towards a compromise candidate, although one has not yet emerged. There's a lot of fatigue already on Capitol Hill as we enter this third day of voting. Remember, each round of voting takes about an hour to an hour and a half and that nothing can get done in the U.S. House of Representatives until a new speaker is sworn in. You have an entire Congress of members who are not yet sworn in. You can't legislate. You can't form any committees. You can't even pay the staffers up on Capitol Hill until you have a new speaker. So really, this is a stalemate. And each day that it goes by, the pressure and intensity to find a compromise really, really builds up. So how long could this process go on? Well, even if McCarthy reaches some sort of compromise for his candidacy with this group of conservatives, they would have to adopt a new rules package, and they would have to wait 72 hours for that to be able to be adopted. So we're really looking at something that's easily going to stretch into the weekend, if not early next week. VOA Capitol Hill correspondent Catherine Gibson, thank you for your input. You're so welcome. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. Today, CES 2023 opens in Las Vegas. The world's largest consumer electronics show is seen as an opportunity for tech companies to show off their latest developments and reach both consumers and retailers. After an unusually low turnout last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic and supply chain issues, organizers say the consumer electronics show is back in full swing. VOA's Hasuna Beishu is in Las Vegas, and we have him on the line to tell us about what he is observing. Welcome to African News Tonight, Hasuna. Thank you. So tell us, tell us about the atmosphere there in Las Vegas. 
Well, I'm here in the exquisite Las Vegas Convention Center where the CES 23, the largest technology trade show in the world, um, is being held. This show has been held since uh, 67 uh, back in, you know, in New York, and it only features back then home appliances, TVs, and radio. Uh, but this year is expected to focus on emerging technologies such as uh, 5G, connectivity, artificial intelligence, and virtual reality. Uh, in addition, robotics, uh, drones, you know, electric cars, and home appliances and other uh, products will be on display. Uh, also, the CES uh, featured presentation and demonstration from major tech companies, but uh, we just actually um, allowed to, uh, we were just allowed to, um, you know, got in because basically the, the, the opening just happened 20 minutes ago, literally. Um, in this event, over 320 companies from the Fortune Global 500 are participating, and uh, more than 60% of the registered uh, attendees are senior level. 174 countries are represented, and there are 41 tech categories in this event. You are observing things around there, so what is drawing the biggest crowd this year? Well, for the most part, it's the uh, you know easing the restriction of COVID-19. Though you know, lots lots of people uh, this time, as you mentioned in the intro, in the last uh, two years or so, uh, the turnout was uh, heavily impacted by COVID-19. According to the organizers, this year, uh, more than a hundred thousand attendees will be uh, attending this event, uh, at least by the time the event will conclude. Uh, next Sunday. What is, uh, uh, is there, like, is there anything that has particularly impressed you? Um, well, there's a lot to be impressed by, to be honest, but we are pretty much focusing on the African participants in this event. Uh, I got to speak to a Burkina Faso uh, startup uh, yesterday, a representative of Burkina Faso startup yesterday, and uh, we're planning to, um, you know, track the African participants. Unfortunately, unfortunately, there are not a lot of them in this event. So, uh, over the next few days, uh, what companies are expected to r- roll out their new products? Well, you have Amazon, you have Microsoft, Canon, uh, LG, Panasonic. Basically, the big tech companies are expected to, uh, you know, display new products that are probably would not be even uh, available in the market uh, very soon. So we're talking about future. VOA's Asuna Beishu, thank you for your input. Reuters reports that France is continuing to back its ambassador to Burkina Faso, whose military government asked for his removal. Locke Halladay has uh, angered Burkinabi leaders with comments, including one in the French Senate last year, that Burkina Faso is engaged in a civil war. French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna told the news channel LCI-TV that she supports the ambassador and all of the embassy staff, who she says are doing a remarkable job in conditions which are difficult. Halad's expulsion follows the military government's declaration of the UN's coordinator for humanitarian affairs as persona non grata. Relations between France and Ouagadougou 
have been deteriorating for years as the military government has replaced French troops with mercenaries from the Russian Wagner Group to fight Islamist insurgents. Colonna told journalists that recent military coups in Burkina have been followed by an organized and methodical anti-French discourse, a campaign, she said, that is likely linked to Wagner. Reuters notes that France retains 400 special forces in the country but is reassessing its military options in Burkina Faso and the rest of Africa. Egypt's economy faces mounting pressure from the rising value of the U.S. dollar, which makes servicing its debt increasingly difficult. Edward Iranian reports from Cairo. As a rising U.S. dollar puts increasing pressure on Egypt's national currency, several Egyptian banks announced Wednesday that they were offering certificates of deposit with 25% interest rates. That news, rather than calming economic markets, appears to have added to pressure on the Egyptian pound, which some news outlets claim is trading at record lows against the dollar. The Egyptian pound has dropped from a level of around 15 pounds to the dollar earlier this year to what some financial outlets say is a new record low of 26 to the dollar Wednesday. The official rate is several points lower, and the black market rate can be up to seven points higher. Efforts by this correspondent to purchase U.S. dollars uncovered at least one black marketeer selling dollars for 33 Egyptian pounds. Egyptian law punishes black market selling of the dollar, and few traders want to go public with their rates. Egypt's need to service its high national debt in U.S. dollars is sucking dollars out of the commercial circuit and pushing the economy into a tailspin. A rising U.S. dollar forces wholesale food buyers to purchase imported foodstuffs like canned tuna, coffee, nuts, kalamata olives, and other items at higher rates as they vie for a limited supply of U.S. dollars on the market, both legal and illegal. Consumers, in turn, are forced to pay increasingly higher prices at the cash register, making their lives even more miserable since they continue to be paid in Egyptian pounds. Anecdotally, some reports indicate that capital has fled Egypt due to rising interest rates in the U.S., one economist told Egyptian media that most of the pressures on the Egyptian economy are coming from outside factors, including the war between Russia and Ukraine, COVID-19, rising world food prices, and inflation in many developed countries. Egyptian political sociologist Saeed Sadiq tells VOA that Egypt and many other Arab countries buy wheat, a major staple of the economy, from both Russia and Ukraine, and that rising wheat prices, along with rising prices of other foodstuffs, sent inflation rates to around 20% last year, contributing to economic pressures in the country. Egypt also needs $42 billion a year to service a debt of $267 billion and a recent loan of $3 billion from the International Monetary Fund does little to reduce the sting. Rising U.S. interest rates within the past year also make servicing Egypt's debt even more onerous. Some speculation of a default by Egypt on its debt has increased pressure on the Egyptian pound. 
Saeed Sadiq says that a revolution in Egypt is very unlikely, despite the increasing economic pressures since Egyptians tried that formula in 2011 when they overthrew veteran leader Hosni Mubarak, only to discover that it did not improve their economic situation. Paul Sullivan, a Washington-based Middle East analyst with the Atlantic Council, tells VOA that the lives of average Egyptians who are mostly poor and getting poorer are much more difficult. Importing goods, including animal feed, has become much more expensive and getting the dollars to import has been far more difficult than in the recent past. The last year, he argues, has been more expensive and stressful than recent years for most Egyptians. Egyptians are resilient people, he adds, survivors, even the most difficult times. But I have to wonder how much more they can take. Edward Uranian for VOA News, Cairo. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiya Suhib in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Shogun Chang, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.